All right, man. Welcome back. Yeah, th- yeah, I'm excited. I had so much fun with last week's episode. That was funny. Like it. <laughs> And y'all did too. Y'all did too. Thank you so much for reaching out with all your NDPEs. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. They told you their story. They told you their stories? No. Okay. But I got a lot of, that has happened to me too. Oh. That's <laughs> happened to me too. I didn't get any details. I thought people messaged you and was telling you their story. They could have, but no. But I just got like so many comments like that people related on the, uh, on the opiate okay. constipation. Because I know I, I read some of the comments. Yeah. And they're like, oh my God. And like, yeah, like opioid constipation is a thing. It's like, a thing. It, it, it sucks. Yeah. It's not, 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 we're not having a good time. Right, right, right. Like yeah. I would rather have, <laughs> I would rather have diarrhea for three months. For sure. Than two days of. No, opioids. no question. Yeah. That was insane. Yeah. That was crazy. Like diarrhea over constipation. Welcome back, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you missed last week's episode, go back and check it out because it was it was a lot of fun. And I think it was a good one to come back to the season on. And our guest today is a great person to follow that up with, yes. I think. Yes. I, I feel like she possibly might have an NDP. I guarantee you she has yeah, an NDP. She has to. She has to. We could ask. Maybe we should like make this. Part, like one of our questions? Like, like one of the questions like, have you ever had an NDP? <laughs> Add it to our list of questions? Yes, it's, it's mandatory. It's got to be. It's just a new thing. That's it's hilarious. It's tr- I guarantee you she has one. And hers is probably gnarly. It's probably when she was either homeless or in jail. Or I guarantee you she yeah. has one. If she doesn't have one, she's seen some... I mean, she's been around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, she's probably seen someone else right. having it. No, I guarantee yeah. you she has. Yeah. Nate keeps looking at my Coke nail. No, no, I'm just looking... I'm just... <laughs> listen, so I'm like... One of my nails is so ugly and long and yeah. bent and cracked. I'm just, I'm just thinking like, man, you could get some fat bumps off that and thing. And he keeps looking at my nail and I'm like, oh my God, I already feel super ratchet. I haven't taken... But like, I was just telling him off air, it's one more thing to deal with. Yeah. You know what I mean? As a girl, I got the fake lashes. I get my hair done all the time. I do my... You know, bougie problems. Yeah, yeah. Problems go, I would have been very grateful to have. Listen, I'm just thinking like how fat of a bump you get off that. Like yeah. I'm not trying to make you feel like ratchet. Not even that. Like or like some conscience about it or whatever. Right. Just no, like, no. I need, I do need yeah. to trim it though. Like I just think about dumb things like that. Like, yeah, I can't help it. I didn't really do the nail thing. I no, uh, that's a lie. I did. Yeah, but not that nail. Um. So before we get into the review of the week and the social media shout out of the week, I decided I did want to address something that I touched on briefly last week. I said something went on the, you know, the break was extended, something going on with my studio. So just to update you guys, because I do talk about it a lot on the show. It's a huge part of my life. And it's actually was a really big part of my recovery. The studio that I owned for the past three years. So I worked there for eight, owned it for three. You guys, again, hear me talk about it all the time. Skylar and I made the decision over the summer to sell the studio, which was the best decision for us. Um, and I'm still happy that we made that decision for sure. Like the sale worked out really well for us and it was the best option with where we were at with what we had left on the lease, like in terms of a business decision as a heart decision, it was almost impossible. It was almost impossible for me to sell it, but the owner that we sold it to, I felt like it was kind of the perfect arrangement because I could keep teaching there and help him run it and manage it because there's so much history there. You know, we've had clients for eight years and I certainly didn't want to walk away and he was willing to let me stay on and teach. So seemed like the best of both worlds. And then unfortunately, as the months progressed, the new owner and the staff, including me, our ideas of where the studio should head, the direction that the studio is headed in, we're just getting more, we're getting less and less aligned with what we believed. So the rest of the staff and I decided that 
it wasn't the right working environment for us anymore. So it's still there. He's still running it, and I really wish him the best of luck with that studio. It was always my vision to see it go on and prosper, but I'm not there anymore, which is crazy. So for the first time in my recovery, I'm not working. It's so weird. You're just a stay-at-home pug, pug mom. Stay-at-home pug mom. I'm a stay-at-home pug mom. Yeah. But not for long. I'm going to be teaching again soon. Okay. You know. Um, but yeah, that's what happened with the studio. It's, it's really weird. And like, it's so connected to my recovery that I'm trying to be aware of that. But I don't feel like, like I was always really afraid that, because I knew I was super, we've talked about this before, being super identified with like your clean time oh, or yeah. your job. And I'm super identified with that studio. And I always thought like, in the unlikely, unlikely scenario that I don't work there anymore. Like, how will I feel? And it is a little bit weird to not be identified how with it. How will I go on? How will I go on? Yeah. But my recovery doesn't feel any, like, it doesn't feel challenged, right? Like, I feel fine recovery-wise. I'm really sad about all the people and stuff. Um, but I think, fortunately, it was, like, long enough that I was able to do the steps multiple times, and I have a solid foundation. And so even though this happened, I don't feel anywhere near, like, using. And, in fact, one of the reasons why we sold it was – as much as I love it and I would never change a thing, and I'm actually really glad that we had it during COVID, which I did not think going into it, but I am so grateful that we owned the studio during COVID, which I know sounds insane, but we were able to like move it outside and what we did with the staff and the clients during that time was literally like magical, like building the outdoor stuff and everybody renting bikes and like coming together and working online. It was like some of the best years of my life. It, 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 at the time, it didn't really feel like it, but looking back... I'm really glad that we had it during that time, but it was super stressful all the time. And my sponsor, Rachel, I called her one day, like crying over, I don't know what about it. And she was like, okay, but here's the thing, Janine, like you sound miserable and the stress of it was pretty miserable. And she said, if you stay miserable long enough, like you're going to get loaded. And that has to be in your awareness somewhere. And when she said that, it kind of spooked me. And I thought like, and so anyways, when the opportunity came to sell it, we took it, which I'm grateful for. But so that was a long way of saying that I'm not there anymore. But one of the other reasons I sold it was I really wanted to focus on the podcast because I hate taking two month breaks, you know, that was not, and that was really only happening because of the studio, you know? So I'm super excited to work on the podcast more and bring you guys content more often and more consistently. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to bring content like as much as we can. Dude, yeah. Nate is like me. He's obsessed with work, which is very, very good I'm, because yeah. he'll, I, I know that like you're always going to want to be here and that you're always going to want to be recording and like, you know? Yeah. Like, well, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy it and I, I enjoy the, I don't know. I just enjoy being real with people. Right. Like, you know, and, and, and I enjoy hearing other people's stories. Me too. Yeah. Okay. So for our social media shout out of the week, which you guys know is a new segment on the show. This week's shout out is Puzzle Lover. Puzzle Lover who commented on our last post when I said we were finally back. They wrote, finally. And I thought, you know what? That's fucking fair, bro. Because yeah. I said I would be back after a month and it took two months and it shows that you cared and that you missed the show. So mm -hmm. Puzzle Lover, thank you so much. Thanks for following. Thanks for listening. I, I validate your frustration because I shared it. And I'm glad that you were looking forward to us coming back. So thank you for your comment. Yeah. I actually really appreciated yeah, it. They, I laughed out loud. That's that's definitely some very valid and righteous anger. One hundred percent. I seen it and I was like, I mean, that's that's fair. That's what I thought I was too. Like, that's, that's so fair. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I know, I know. 
know. I promised a month ago. So thank you, Puzzle Lover. We appreciate having you as a listener. Yeah, we do. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. And then for our review of the week, we've got a good one. Yeah, so this is from this is from Diamond. So shout out Diamond. And Diamond wrote, As an addict in recovery, I must say, when I discovered this podcast about six months ago, it was just what I needed. I'm coming up on three years and wanted to be part of something new and refreshing, but that still included others, just like myself, who I could relate to. And then I found Janine and Chasing Heroin, and I fell in love with this podcast. I love the realness, the no-judgment-past style of the host and guests, as well as the chance to hear others' experiences, strength, and hope on this amazing platform. I hope it continues to grow and touch those who are no stranger to the monster of addiction, no matter where they are in their process, as well as non-addicts, so that they may better understand the disease. Diamond, thank you so much. Congratulations on three years, and thank you for the kind words. We can't even begin to tell you guys how much we appreciate it when we read these reviews. So thank you so much, and uh, definitely keep them coming. If you haven't written one yet, you've got a few moments, we would love a star rating on Spotify and a star rating and possibly a written review on Apple. Well, thank you guys for joining us again for week two. We're super excited to be back. Yeah, thank you for listening and for all the support for week one. We're excited to share this with you. Early recovery is awful. Yeah, it's the worst. It, it really is. Like, I think it takes six months for you really not to crave drugs, you know? And I think craving is different. The kind of craving I'm talking about is fuck everything. I, I will fuck everything in my life up to get high right now. Yes. Like, I will, I will trade everything right now. And it takes a while for you to realize that, like, a thought, a, a craving is a thought. It's my actions. And you feel like you have no control of your actions. You know what I mean? You feel like you're just, like, there's magnets in your shoes drawing you places. The clip you guys just heard is a clip from today's episode. Our guest is Tracy Helton. I actually found Tracy on TikTok. She's a really popular recovery content creator on TikTok. And the more I followed her story, the more I was fascinated by her history, her past, her life. And I knew I just had to get her on the show. And she fortunately agreed. You guys are going to love the episode. She was featured on a really popular HBO documentary. It came out in 1999. It followed Tracy and a few other people and documented their life as homeless heroin addicts in San Francisco. She did get sober in 1998. She has been clean and sober since 1998. She completed her BS and an MPA through an ex-offenders program. She works as an addiction specialist. She's married. She has three kids and gives back in the harm reduction community as well. She's a harm reduction advocate and gives freely of her time. We had such a great time talking to her. We could have talked to her forever. And in fact, we will be bringing her back for a part two. So you guys will notice the episode just sort of abruptly ends. And that is my fault while we were recording. This has never happened before, but while we were recording, I checked my phone and I had something happening with my family that I literally had to take care of that second, like a, a, a huge emergency. And I had to stop recording, which I've never had to do, fortunately. So Tracy was gracious enough to say, sure, of course. And she was going to come back for a part two. So we will have her back here shortly to talk a little bit more about her clinical experience and her knowledge and information and expertise around harm reduction as well. So thank you guys for tuning in and let me know what you think.
thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. My name is Janine. I'm an addict in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. My name is Nate, and I'm an addict in recovery. My sobriety date is October 28th, 2018. And we are super excited to have Tracy on our show today. I've wanted to actually have her on for multiple seasons. Thank you so much for agreeing. I know that you're super busy. You are a mom, and I know that you're that you work and that you've got a lot going on. You do a lot um, of harm reduction, additional work to your actual job. And so thank you so much for carving out the time for us. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. So if you don't mind, we'll jump right in. Just give us like a brief background. And I know a lot of this from reading your book, right? But which by the way, you guys, I, I recommend The Big Fix. You can get it on Amazon. It's an amazing book. Probably one of my favorite recovery memoirs that I've ever read. Um, if you don't mind, give us a brief background where you're from, how you got started using, how you got caught up into ending up in San Francisco, all that. So I'm from a place called Westchester, Ohio. And when I was growing up, it was um, like cornfields and farms and stuff like that. Now it's like one big sprawling suburb from one end to the other, but it was like a rural area. And I got um, exposed to drugs when I was very young. So there's a lot of things I left out of my book because uh, I did not want to infringe upon other people's experiences in my family. Um, but, uh, you know, I had an older sibling who was um, using drugs when they were a teenager. Mm -hmm. And so they, their friend, not them, but their friends gave me drugs when I was really young. Um, so I tried like weed and alcohol before I was eight years old. And so when I was eight, that sibling ran away from home and never came back. And so I lived a very, like, very sort of, well, I was straight edge, but very straight, sort of straight laced lifestyle for a long time. Um, but I was diagnosed as having depression when I was 12 years old. The school was actually very concerned, um, you know, just because of my like wearing pajamas for three weeks at a time before kids wore like cookie munch pajamas to school. Like there's just a lot of different things, but you know, this was in the eighties when like people didn't really get involved with like things that were going on in your household. And like, it's a very, it was a very small area. So every, everybody kind of knew like various things that were going on in my house, but nobody ever did anything about it. Um, uh, but you know, I grew up also um, indoctrinated into 12 step because my mom went to Al-Anon for nine and a half years. So there was always like the footprints on the sand, on the refrigerator and <laughs> yeah. like, as Bill sees it, you know, all the different, you know, cause my dad was an alcoholic. So she'd always have like all the 12 step literature laying around the house and like hopes that one day he would like pick it up. Um, and I remember being like 16 and going to visit my dad in rehab the I know he went a few times was like, that was like the one time I remember him going and being exposed to, uh, you know, AA and thinking what a load of horseshit that it was in just a lot of ways. Um, just because, you know, my dad, you know, just to kind of skip ahead, my dad went to AA and he never got sober and he went, he went many times. And, and at one point he went for like years in a row. And to him, he liked AA for like the social aspect of it like the clubhousey, you know, the Midwest have lots of like AA clubhouses and stuff like that. But like to him quitting drinking, like it, it just was not something, I don't know how to explain it. Like 
alcohol was, you know, to him, like a beer was like a soda with plus it was like some, you know, it just wasn't that the, the concept of quitting drinking entirely was not something he was ever going to be successful at. Mm-hmm. And so I wish moderation management would have been more something that was more popular because he really could have benefited from cutting back because he was never going to quit. And so, you know, I remember being 16 and him getting drunk within like, I think the first or second day after he got out of the rehab and lying about it. And that was the day my grandmother ended up being in the hospital and dying and stuff. So we had to drive my mom to the hospital drunk. And like my whole life was, um, you know, my parents arguing about his drinking, a lot of stuff, you know, he was, he was, you know, violent at one point when I was younger, but, um, so then by the time I got to be a teenager in my late teens, um, I just was, you know, very depressed. There's no, like, you know, I was listening to punk rock music. There's just kind of like no end in sight. And I remember when I got my wisdom teeth pulled and I wouldn't say I got addicted to drugs when I got my wisdom teeth pulled, but what I will say is when I felt those opioids, I felt how I wanted to feel, which was, I don't a fuck I don't care and you know I had tried like weed and drink you know I had tried different stuff but that this this was different it was a you know a different type of feeling and by this time I had already been into like cutting myself burning myself eating disorders like there was nothing left like addiction you know drugs were like the last thing that was left in terms of like you know spinning in circles Mountain Dew smoking banana peels all the shit you do when you're you know you're living out in the country in the sticks and so i just remember you know it's and it's within i would say a few weeks of me finishing high school because I, I moved out of my parents house before i even turned 18 because my dad and i were about to get into you know it was very close to us getting into violent confrontations because i was old enough to understand that his drinking was something that he just did he was not willing to give up at all and he was just it was just real fucked up you know just I was very very upset and so right away when I moved out of my parents house and for 10 years after that it was just like first it was like real heavy drinking like um and then you know drug you know drugs pretty much right away and then I and then I just remember at one point I had I white knuckled it. I got together with this guy and he was in prison and like I white knuckled it for six months. And that was the last time I had any period of like not trying to drink. And I never saw myself as I knew what addiction was to a certain extent, but I'm, you know, when you're young, your brain is not fully developed. Like I was always like, well, that's never going to happen to me. Like I remember when I first, when I first had to detox from opioids, I, I remember I had a friend and they had, they came back from San Francisco and they had been strung out on heroin and they were very, very sick. And I was like, well, all that shit is in your head. Right. Yeah. I read that in your book and I thought, I agree. I thought the exact same thing. I thought it was just psychological until it actually happened, you know? And then I, and then I was injecting morphine sulfates for like five days and I was on the couch and I was just like, oh my God, like this is real. Like this is not good. And, and I was in a little circle of people that were like very nihilistic, like punk rock people, but I still was holding it together a little bit. You know, I was working and I was going to school, but like, I just was fucked up. You know what I mean? I was, a, I, 
I just, I would say that opioids probably kept me from killing myself. And then, and then I just, then I just fell off the cliff. That was all. Um, but I would say like, I chose to do all those things. Like I've had people who try to make amends to me and they're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Like I was some victim in some scenario. And it was like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is what I wanted. Like, right. this is what I want. I wanted, like, I liked shooting heroin. Like I liked shooting drugs. Like that's something I liked right. quite a bit. Do you mind sharing just, there was an incident that happened before you moved to San Francisco and it kind of was the impetus for you to leave when you met that guy in a bar and it, and I feel like it was a pivotal part of your story and it's, just, and it's, and it's an interesting story, but it, it was also kind of pivotal because it moved you into like the next era of your using. So it's not even, I met him. So I, so I, when I, I got together with this family um, that I knew in my addiction and well, this is when I was starting my addiction and like they had, there was the sister and the brother. So he and I were like BFFs and me and the sister were like BFFs independently. He's the first person who actually shot me up. And like, he killed his stepdad when he was 14. And I was like friends with him before that happened. He said, I'm going to kill this motherfucker, Jim. Uh, and he was this abusive, like stepdad that, and he shot him and he killed him. And like, I was involved with this family and he already had been like uh, a child ex, you know, I don't say child exploitation, like sexually exploited when he was prostituting when he was like 12 and 13 years old. And like his sister had already got, like they were already in this lifestyle. And so she had this ex-boyfriend who came around and uh, he had owed money to a loan shark. And I was hanging out with him, we were drinking Cisco and he had $2,240 in his sock. And he, we got really, really drunk and he, at, at this bar and he passed out and you know the kind of apartment I had, like I had two mattresses on the floor and there was graffiti on the walls and everybody was coming in and out of my apartment all the time. And there's like broken mirror for when my friend had tried to kill himself and you know, there's this mess. And so when he passed out, the other guy that was there took his money and I didn't know anything about it. Uh, but this guy, Tim actually is his name. And when he woke up, this guy woke up, he held me hostage with a pair of scissors. Then he was going to murder. He was going to, he said, I'm, he said, bitch, I'm not even going to kill you. I'm going to put your eyes out oh and God. make you, and make you live the rest of your life like this. And he used to burn down buildings for the mafia. That's what he was in prison for. He burned down this building and the people were still in it. And like, he didn't give a fuck. And I think he might even still be alive. But uh, the last time I talked to somebody, he was still alive. It took him years to figure out that I didn't actually, he was like, he was stalking my parents like oh two years God. later. Uh, it took him like two or three years to figure out I didn't actually take his money. Um, but he, so he held me hostage. And, and like within a couple of day, days, I had taken my college tuition check and I had it rerouted and I took the money and I got on the Greyhound bus to San Francisco because I thought, well, I'll come out here. And I had a friend who went here who was actually straight edge and I stayed with him. And like, I went to Goldgate Park and found heroin right away and taking the Cinequans, which are these drugs they give you in prison to keep you from being violent. I was like passed down on Market Street with $900 on me and these 
random people were like can we give you a ride somewhere and I was like they were like where do you live I was like Ohio and they're like well we can't give you a ride there but we'll take you to your friend's dorm and and that was it and you know I uh and within a couple days of getting out here uh I sent home a, a first holy communion card that had a sheet of acid in it and the girl that I sent it to ended up selling it to a guy we knew from high school and he had was wearing a wire oh shit and she, and he ended up she ended up getting nine years in prison so seven years week for the for the acid so it was a mandatory minimum so one hit or a thousand sheets was all seven years and my apartment was across the street from a school zone so she got a two-year enhancement oh my god so and I had sent it home to her and they had sent a SWAT team to my house. I mean, looking for me and all this other kind of stuff. So I was stuck out in California. The statute of limitations actually ran out in 1999. Oh my um, God. In the, ca- in the case. I so don't like, know why you stayed in San Francisco. Holy I know, well, people would be like, why don't you go home? I was, and I never would talk about it, but that was, um, that's, I mean, I just don't talk about, I just right. don't talk about it that much. She, I mean, she was convicted. She yeah. bailed herself out on, and ran. I don't think they ever did catch her. Oh, wow. But she, I mean, because back then you could change your identity. You could go to the graveyard, find somebody's name, look them up. You know, they'd look for babies that would die. You'd get a copy of their, you'd order a social security card in their name. And um, I'm just giving away shit. Like that's shit people <laughs> used to do. Like I, that's shit people used to do. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. They, and then they would like go on dead tour and, you know, right. make money, live selling, off the grid. living off the grid and, yeah. you know, be a cook in the woods somewhere and go to the rainbow gathering a couple times so, a year. So you end up in San Francisco and you end up shooting dope for another eight years on the streets. Right. And then how did you get involved in the HBO documentary? Well, it wasn't just dope. It was, I did a lot of meth, which okay. a lot of people don't know, but like, I had, I did a lot of everything. So in 1992, I got out here and uh, I started use, using heroin in 1990, but I got here in 1992. And, you know, when I came out to San Francisco, everybody had AIDS. Right. And I think that that's not something a lot of people today understand. Like a lot of people have lost people to the overdose crisis, but back then everybody was dying. If you were injecting drugs, everybody was dying um from AIDS and there was no medications so you would get a friend and they would contract HIV and they would die within two years or sometimes sooner because a lot of them would kill themselves and so I got out here and people were shooting dope everywhere and smoking crack and um, you know people got me into sex work they're like oh if you're gonna stay out here you're gonna have to be involved in this and I was you know I was homeless and uh I would say the bottom part of my life, like the actual bottom of my addiction was not the end because at the end I had all the drugs I wanted. Mm-hmm. Like I was selling drugs for low level Mexican cartel. I had as much drugs as I wanted. That was not the bottom part of my addiction. The bottom part of my addiction was probably the period a couple years into me coming to California where I was like, I was in this abusive relationship and he used to beat my ass so bad that none of the hotels would run a room to me because they were like, here are too many problems. They would see me coming and they remembered me from him. And they, and so I ended up being homeless, like on the street with a shopping cart for a long time, like out sleeping outside, 
you know, not going inside at all. Like I had like one friend who would sometimes let me stay at his apartment, but like, you know, just like living outside, eating out of trash cans and, you know, whatever. And uh, I cut off all ties with my parents uh, because I didn't want my mom to like have to deal with me like that. So I had, I had no contact with her for at least a year. And uh, at the end of that, that's when I ran into the people from HBO. Like I just started contacting my mom again a little bit because I had gone to jail. And when I was in jail, I contacted her. Uh, and then they were, I met them at the syringe exchange because he, the guy had made a, he had made a movie about kids that had had HIV. Okay. And so he was looking for people younger than me. And I just talked him into the, uh, to being in the film. And it wasn't because I wanted to be in a movie. I just thought I was going to die. So I thought, you know, cause I had thought heroin was kind of glamorous. Like, yeah. you know, you listen to the Velvet Underground and you, you know, you are in a subculture where I, to me, being a dope addict meant freedom. And I don't, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense. Like if you read, um, you can't win, or you, you know, you read these different books, you know, different books and stuff, like not William S. Burroughs so much, but like other people, like as a, it was just so much free, you know, freedom and like being able to do whatever I wanted to do, but but you really can't do anything. You're not a creative person because you're stuck. You can't leave a four block area. Right. How I've am heard I do people say that on the streets, like even to this day, like that I'll meet that. And they say that's like part of the why there's the why they're still there because of the freedom, even though it's like limited. You feel free to I mean in the early stages of it, you feel free. Like I I'm doing what the fuck I want to do. I'm not working a nine to five job. Nobody's controlling me. Like even if I'm doing sex work to survive, like my life is on my own terms um but then my arm is rotting off because i've had you know a zillion abscesses i got an abscess on each wing you know one time they arrested me i had an abscess bandage it smelled so bad they didn't even want to arrest me oh my God. because you could smell it from like a half a block away because i oh hadn't changed God. the bandage for a month and like you know you're it's almost like you're it's the cognitive dissonance you can't get over it you know what i mean like um you're because you can't live like that if you really understand how shitty your conditions are you know what i mean That's because there's but how can you change like i just remember one night in particular i mentioned in my book but just like in general you know I'm, I'm i'm outside i have a shopping cart i'm living in this alleyway uh how am i going to change my life like i have a warrant I have infections all over my body. I haven't seen my family in four years. Like I have no friends. Like I wasn't the kind of drug user that had friends. I was the kind of drug user that paid people drugs to hang out with me. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah, so yeah. like some people have, you know, some people have friends, like there's whole communities of people who use drugs, but I wasn't, people would lock me out of their house. Like, bitch, I don't want you in my house because yeah. Uh, I was because all I wanted to do was get high. That's it. Like that, I didn't want to be friends. I didn't want to share with you. And you know, a lot of people have told me that they thought I was a they thought I was a nice person back then. But I'm like, you must not. You must be high. You must have been high because you really weren't thinking very straight. And it's not like I ripped people off. I just did not want. I just did not care right. if that makes any sense. Like I wasn't known for being like a hustler that ripped people off or like you couldn't trust me at your house. It was just, 
I had a death wish. So people don't want to watch somebody else die when they're trying to get high. You know what I mean? But also at the same time, I was never one of those people who would like do huge shots of dope. Like there's nothing worse than somebody who does like a huge shot of dope and like Klonopins and, and talks about dying. It's like, just shut the fuck up. You know, I was always like this maintenance user. Like I'm using just enough to live and not die. And, and I think it was just because I had a, such a, a sadness about me you know what i mean just like a sad you know like untreated mental health issues just kind of like hanging on um and i had people that i loved very much you know my ex-boyfriend's spanky his name was daniel he and i got to be you know we're friends up until he died like even though i got you know i got sober we stayed friends we didn't kind of stay in contact all the time and i always loved him you know what i mean we always we're, we had a lot of love and affection between the two of us, but if it became, if it was between choosing between me and, and a, a person and drugs, I always chose drugs. Right. So how long did the documentary end up being? Cause I haven't, I've read your book, but I haven't seen the documentary. How long did it follow you guys? <clears throat> so they followed us for a year. And then the place that was supposed to buy it, didn't want to buy it. And then HBO said, well, we'll do it, but you have to do it for two years. And so they came back and they said, "Can they followed a bunch of other people around that they ended up cutting out of it. The okay. thing about that documentary that a lot of people don't understand today is it was like one of the most popular movies that came out that whole year. That's so funny. like I was followed around. I was stalked. People stalked my mom. Like did it's they very, they did not pay me. They did not pay me. And I was sober for a year when it came out and they refused to put that in the movie. <sighs> so you know so people come up to me do you i saw you in that movie you want to get high and stuff it's like no and i would go to i went to like an na meeting i remember they were talking about me and i'm sitting right there you know they're talking about this movie that they had seen and but you know they i i was selective about what i let what i talked about with them though which i i'm so glad i was like i didn't get into like sex work or like certain things because i didn't want them um, you know, I had had old sugar daddy for a long time. And like, there's certain things I just didn't want my family to be super embarrassed yeah. about. Like, right. <clears throat> you know, and they, but I mean, they also, they, I remember there's one scene, they asked me to do laundry and I said, and I had asked the filmmaker years later, I was like, I never did laundry. Cause I would just pick clothes up off the street and wear them or go to the Goodwill and you know, whatever. And he was like, we had to film you doing something else. Cause all you ever did was shoot heroin. Yeah. Wow. And I was like, that's tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that aligns with my memories. <laughs> you know, that, that tracks. So, so. What, so the last time you got sober, if you don't mind walking us through your last, I, I know it was in the jail. The only time. The only, oh, you didn't try before that? I, I guess you said the one six month period. But other than that, this was- That wasn't me trying to get sober. That was just me being, I never tried to get sober. This is the only time I've ever tried to get yeah. sober. Okay, so how so did you- So I tried it? to quit. So I, I was on methadone twice. I would try to quit, but I never tried to get sober. Like okay. I never was interested in being sober. Like I was very, I, was, I wanted to stop using drugs for probably six months before I finally quit. Okay. and so i was with my boyfriend ben at the time and he was like oh let's try to cut back and we would cut back and all this other kind of stuff but i was like because he had been sober before and he was like well these are the things you're gonna have to do and i and i was and you know there's nothing worse than when you're getting high and somebody's talking about getting sober, sober it's like dude shut the fuck up i'm just i'm just trying to be high over here 
But then I really started thinking about it and I was like, I'm going to die. Like I'm shooting up heroin, speed and cocaine in the same syringe in my feet. I can barely walk. I, I mean, I can, cause they're I'm shooting up the bottom of my feet, the soles of my feet, my fingers, my toes, my ankles. I've no, my tits, I have no veins anywhere. It's taking me an hour to get it hit. Everything hurts. Every I'm, I'm selling drugs for these people who would dump me in the fucking bay and couldn't give a shit less. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, my friends were robbing me because I'm selling drugs now. Like I'm sitting alone, you know, watching TV in some hotel room, like trying to shoot up between my toes. And like, I was like, I'm going to die and no one will, and nobody will care except for my family, but I'll be tagged with Jane Doe. Uh, and, you know, not I mean, my family, really my mother. And so I was just like, maybe I am going to try to get sober. And I had a suitcase back packed in my closet and I had made a decision. I had said when they arrest me, when they try to arrest, when they're, cause they're coming for me cause I had a warrant. When they arrest me, I'm going to give going to a rehab one time, one time. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to go on methadone for the rest of my life and, and do powder Coke on holidays, whatever. And that's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and that's going to be it. And that, and that will be the, and that will be it. And so when they did arrest me, I left that suitcase. Cause I was like, I don't ever want to come back to any of this shit. I don't no. want to. And so I was doing like, you know, seven different kinds of drugs when they arrested me. And I knew I was going to like have this horrible kick, but then they didn't want to send me to rehab. Cause they were like, Oh no, bitch, you've been selling all this, all these drugs. And you, we want to send you to prison for three and a half years. And it just so happened that my probation officer was in recovery. And he was asking me, he's like, well, they caught you with the half ounce of heroin. I said, I said, it's not that I wasn't selling it. I said, but mostly I could do that whole half ounce myself in two days. Right. I said, that's how bad my problem is. You know, and I said, I, you know, and I, I basically was honest for like the first time in my life. I was like, look, this is my, this is my situation. I have never been to rehab. There's no reason why they shouldn't at least try to send me one time. Cause I, I don't want to use it anymore. Like, and they thought I had HIV. They, they, I, I lost so much weight and I had had thrush and all this other kind of stuff. They thought I was, and this is when an HIV test would take you like three weeks to get back the results. And I was like, I don't care if I'm HIV positive. Um, I just want to not use anymore. Yeah. I don't think I knew what recovery was. So I don't, I just don't want to use anymore. And he was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get you into rehab. Well, you know, cause my mom's calling him cause I'd refused to go to rehab in 1996. So I was like, I don't want any help from my, I don't want any, anybody. I just want to do this myself and just go to this rehab. And it was terrible rehab. It was <laughs> God awful. Terrible oh, rehab. I was there for three and a half months. Cause it was, I was sentenced. So I had okay. to complete, I saw a T extra in the rehab and the rehab was like, they're paying for your bed in lieu of the jail so when your jail time is over we're not keeping you okay like you have to find a place and i had a counselor who was actually really really helpful he ended up dying from drugs actually later but at the time he was very helpful and he was like i think you can do this i think you can do but you're gonna have to you know he basically said you're gonna have to pull your out of your ass you know because i was fucking people you know it's just like a whole all this stuff you, you know i fucked some yeah. drug dealer he left the program we fucked after that but like i was just getting into like all the shit that you get into in the rehab 
and he was like you're he said you don't have much time he's like you have six weeks to finish this shit you have to do for the program to find yourself a job and find yourself a place to live so he's like what are you gonna do and you know and he he didn't like say it in a way that was uh scared me he just was like you know this is what you gotta do and the and the and the women there the women counselors the one lesbian counselor was like these men just want to fuck you she was like there's there's 10 men for every band here you've got to leave this shit alone and like do what you have to do so what did you do what was your first job and then you got into sober living right i i worked at a market research place with like all these freaks who are on drugs like drag queens and uh it was crazy there they fire they'd fire people on the spot like there was domestic violence there was this crazy place but then i got into the salvation army sober living so there was they took me with a less than a week's notice which was unheard of and i had to piss in a cup and i lived in the tenderwood i lived right in the same block where i used to get high so i'd walk outside and it'd be like some dudes i used to get high with um i remember i used to get dressed up i had like my ben davis shirt and my nike cortezes and i'd press my <laughs> pants like i looked like i always had wanted to look when i was like selling drugs uh and i would go out and then the drug dealers would give me money or ask me if i wanted to go back to work they're like oh you look so good now now you can come back to work and i was like no no um, what do you think what helped you stay clean when you were right in the area that you used in do you know just spite spite okay <laughs> I mean, I'm just being, I think 12 step helps me a lot at the very beginning. And I'm going to be honest, like, I think to a certain extent it's brainwashing and I need my brain washed. Like I needed a routine, um, to have, and like a positive thing to do. I also was going to a women's outpatient program for women who had been sex workers. And so like having there to go, because, you know, I, I, I fucked a bunch of lames, you know, a couple, not a ton, but enough, a couple. And like, I just really needed to be by myself. And I think me being by myself, no relationship, just working on myself. Cause I, I didn't even know who I was. I, the only personality I had was like in the bottom of a cooker. That was the only personality I had. Like, I didn't know, I don't know who I, I didn't know what I liked. I remember when I first, I have these old pictures of me wearing like FUBU sweatsuits. I looked like a, when I was a drug dealer, like what I knew as a drug dealer, then uh but i was sober you know because that's what the people who used to sell drugs that were in na looked like especially like the older you know african-american dudes and stuff that took me under their wing they were like you know and i was but then i went to a, a fang show like a punk rock show when i was sober uh they had them play at like an na event here and i was like that's actually what i am into like i'm not even into this like i'm a chameleon and i'm dressing and i'm doing things to try to what I think people want me to be, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and I had to like stop all that to try to see and like, what kind of music do I even like? What kind of food do I even like? What kind of things do I even like to do? I didn't so, know. So just trying different things and you kind of started to put yourself back together. It sounds like your personality, your life, who you are, like rebuilding. I think so. And I, you know, and then I, and I had to really, <coughs> uh, early recovery is awful yeah it's the worst it it really is like i think it takes six months for you really not to crave drugs you know and i think craving is different the kind of craving i'm talking about is fuck everything i i will fuck everything in my life up 
to get high right now. Yes. Like I will, I will trade everything right now. And it takes a while for you to realize that like a thought, a, a craving is a thought. It's my actions. And you feel like you have no control of your actions. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You feel like you're just like, there's magnets in your shoes drawing you places and you have no, and I think part of like, having a routine in the early phases really helped me because so i mean early recovery is just a mind fuck it's just it's really hard yeah it's really hard and your crotch comes alive before you're like think, <laughs> oh, you to oh my god oh yeah that's the truth wait i remember you did a tiktok on like masturbation or something like that was that what you did you did was that what it was i saw one that you did about about doing it in jail like that or yeah like your sex drive comes back like holy shit like that especially like for me when i was doing opiates like no we're not having sex but right. then when i kicked opiates it was like oh my god like where did all this come from yeah your your crotch is like a lot i mean they had to tell me in jail they were like we need you to take your hands out of your pants to come get your tray <laughs> and I, and i was like and i should and i should have been humiliated but i just did not care you know what i mean like <laughs> Because there's, there's, you know, they, they got on me because they were like, the, the woman came and she went to the CEO and she's like, she's shaking the bunk so much. And I was like, bitch, if this is on my housing card, I will kill, I will beat the fucking shit out of you. But it was true because I was yeah. just constantly masturbating because I, you can't sleep, you can't yeah. think. And then you're supposed to like be a normal person when like all these, in I'm th this woman, Thelma, she had to literally tell me you have to wash your hands with soap. Like you've been living as like a feral creature for so long. Like you, you have to wash your hands with, with soap. And, uh, you know, all my clothes were like, some guy had left rehab, this guy, Michael, and all his clothes fit me size 36 so i was like wearing all his clothes like i didn't have anything yeah. my mom was like well let me try to help you and i was like i don't want any help i didn't want to do this 100 percent by myself like i don't want any because all i ever do is use people that's all i ever do is like i don't my con was not to take things from you my con was to get you to give it to me and believe that you wanted to give it to me right See, this is why I wanted to have you on the show, though, because the, knowing your story and knowing where you were, when you're in those moments, like you started to say, it doesn't feel like you're ever going to be anything different, right? When, when, when you're a full-on homeless person, there was never a moment for me when I was living outside, sleeping outside, that I thought I would ever be different. Like, there, it didn't feel real when you've got warrants and bad credit and haven't had a license in years. It just, the mountain of getting back to life seems like insurmountable, you know, and your evidence that it's actually possible to do. How did you get to like where you are now? Because now you work, you went to school, you're married. Like, how did all of that start to come about? So that's a long story. I mean, that's a long story. So right. I think everything happens incrementally and it happens so slowly, slowly you don't see it. Yeah. And I think we be, we're people that are so used to instant gratification that we, a lot of people, they say leave before in the miracle, but I don't really think that's true. I think that you, you give a lot of people throw the talent on themselves before when they actually are changing. They yeah. are actually, it's just not, it's just not happening. Fa I, I had no material shit for many, many years. I lived in a room with no bathroom and sober living. I had 
fucking shit that I bought at Ross. It was the best time of my life. You know what I mean? I lived in the shittiest neighborhood, but I ate the best food. You know, and it's because I all the ethnic food that was there. Like I had the bet. I had used to travel and you know do little things and you know. And I just worked and like focused on recovery and went back to school. And like it was a great time in my life. It's when you start living behind beyond your means emotionally or or financially, or whatever that you, you start. It's a choke point in early recovery to where everybody tries everybody tried to convince me that i should move and all these people who tried to convince me that i moved ended up getting evicted from their places because uh they couldn't afford the rent when they moved to some new or their roommate was smoking crack you know their roommate relapsed and i was like i'm exactly where i need to be in life and like that's always been like my philosophy is like why am i in a rush yeah. If I really have my whole life, I can't rush this. Like I can't, I, and I always said that some people are sicker than others. I was a very, very sick person. Yeah. I needed a lot of help. So I could not be on anybody else's timetable. Like I had to be on my own timetable. Like my relationship that I have with my husband, I was in no rush to be, I did not even want to be in a relationship. Like he basically had to talk me into going out with them because I did not want to be in a relationship I had been by myself for almost two years and I was fine with that. Like I was cool with that. I, I used to go on practice dates with men where I'd tell them I'm not going to sleep or and women too, but I was like, I'm not going to fuck you. I'm not going to go to your house, but we can go hang out. And do you know how many people took me up on that offer? Like so few yeah. because uh, you, and you would weed out people who, yeah. you know, cause I was like, I'm not a well person. I dated some guy for like six months. I never did anything. I never even kissed him. Cause I was like, there's something about you. I don't like, and it turned out he was a trick. Like he saw me as a project, like somebody to fix. And I was like, I don't need any, anybody to rescue me. Like I'm good. Like I'm in this good, I'm in a good place. So I went back to school through an ex offenders program. And then I got a better job as a peer helper. Uh, and that, and then I started working in harm reduction before they even called it harm reduction. And I started giving back to the community and slowly my life started to change because I really wanted to help people. But and I started getting to mental health treatment and the therapist said, I only see people for a year. And she saw me for seven years because wow. she was going to write a book about me, actually, because I just had so much stuff. I had so much stuff that like uh, and if you didn't have stuff before active addiction, if you spend enough years in the tenderloin, like every day is like worried about being raped or getting raped or seeing someone get murdered, or like, it was like every day with some, you know, somebody dying and, you know, saving somebody from an overdose. Like, I'm not a normal person. Like, I'm just not. Like, if I, if I was before then, but like those kind of chaotic environments, I like that kind of shit. So like being a peer helper, it helps me. I don't know, like I respond very well in that environment. Like I, when things are quiet is when I have problems. Yeah. Like, cause then my mind starts. Doo, 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 doo. So I went through that. Uh, and, you know, I just slowly things started to change my life. I got my first apartment with my boyfriend at the time and we got a cat and like, that was my dream. Like that was to get a cat and like reunited with my family, my mother, my father was always a motherfucker. She never divorced him. He died from complications of alcoholism um, and never got sober. You know, his sponsor was there. He never got sober. Uh, you know, my mom used to joke when, because he'd come back drunk after the meet meetings, like, does they serve cocktails at the meeting? Like, what is going, you know, what is going on? Uh, and 
you know, I just, but I think you have to get help. Yeah. We don't want to ask anybody for help because we think we're bothering them. Like, I don't want to get help. Like, I, I got help through financial programs. I got help through victim services. I got help through peer counselors. I got help, you know, uh, people that I met in the rooms helped me. My mother helped me. Like, I didn't want, I, I got help through different people. Like, there's, it's not like I'm a self-made person. There was a lot of people who contributed. That's why I help people. Like, Nate's called me. People could just call me. I don't even fucking know them. They called yeah, me. Yeah, I've called her. I've been like, Tracy, I need to For ask what? you. Uh, just talking about work and just oh, resources. And I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, I've just been like, hey, can oh, I cool. schedule a time to, to talk to you? And uh-huh. she's like, yeah, call me. And, oh, that's cool. Yeah, people uh, people are just, just call. People know that they can just call me. People don't even know. They're just like, oh, can I talk? Yeah, because you, we all need help. We need some kind of help and mm-hmm. like you and and i think one of the biggest problems that people who've been in that lifestyle have is that uh we get to a certain place and we don't want to ask people for help because there's so much stigma uh you know i got i go ahead i said in shame the shame that comes shame. along with yeah the shame it just kills people so i got on psych meds in 2020 in january of 2020 and, you know, when I started in 12-step, they used to say people who got on psych meds were not sober. Like, I had so much internal stigma. And I think about all the years that I suffered because I was just afraid to ask for medications. And and two women that I knew, my uh, sponsee and my sponsor, I still sort of have a sponsor, but she came over here and they sat with me and they were like, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. Like, you're going to the hospital. I went to the hospital three times with panic attacks and they're like, why don't you just take the medication? Like, why, what is it about it? It's like, and, and my life has changed in a lot of ways. And like, you know, getting help with stuff. Um, you know, I've had a mini nervous breakdown a couple to, you know, a couple times, uh, just because of being stressed and like, you can't go through the things I went through in my life and just be completely normal. It's just not going to happen. But normal is like, but as you get older, you realize that normal is like, that's this you know that's not really a real thing no one's really normal the more you scratch the surface people the more you realize how crazy some people are 